For the rest of us in here, we are going to be in Revelation uh, chapter 20 this morning. I have the privilege of preaching on one of the most disagreed um, about chapters in, in all of Scripture this morning as we talk about this thing called the millennium. Um, my intention this morning, for the most part, is not to get into those disagreements, uh, but to preach uh, this morning as we have preached throughout the book of Revelation, to preach it as it is before us, of course, preaching from the perspective that we have been approaching the book of Revelation, not focusing this morning on the disagreements, um, though of course they're there. And, and I hope that even if you may come away disagreeing with me this morning, um, that the big picture things that we'll talk about this morning are the same, largely regardless um, of the perspective that we have on, on the millennium. I also don't think it's quite right for us to just completely avoid the various disagreements. So if you are really wanting to know about those and dive in deep and, and understand more deeply how we've come to where we are as, as pastors of the church, come to Sunday school next Sunday morning, 9 a.m., and we'll spend the entire hour talking about the millennium if you're into that kind of thing. So, but for us now, let's dive into Revelation chapter 20. Let's read it. Then I saw... An angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into a pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast and its image and had not received its mark on their forehead and on their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, blessed, and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown down into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it for his presence for from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need you with us this morning. Would you be present? Would you teach our hearts? Might even you teach us through this passage this morning to worship you 
and have even greater confidence in you and your great and your awesome plan, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure many of you will be watching the Super Bowl tonight, and I I can just imagine if you were in that control room of the Super Bowl, what would you see? You see all of these screens, right? You would see all of these different perspectives on the exact same thing that's going on, right? In some ways, I, I think as we look at our text this morning, it's kind of helpful to think of it like that, or at least to think of our, our text in, as scenes that we see. Some of those scenes go on at the exact same, same time. So what I'm going to do is just let's go through the text super fast. And then we're going to come back and we're going to move through it a little bit slower. Let's see the, the, the big picture that's going on here. The camera pans down from heaven, if you will. And we see an angel descending who is holding keys and a chain. And what does he do? He seizes Satan and he binds him and he throws him into a pit for a thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And then we shift to another scene, a scene that's going on at the exact same time. The, the perspective shifts up to the heavens and there, what do we see? But we, John sees thrones. And on those thrones of the martyrs are, are all who have died but have remained faithful to Christ. And for a thousand years, they, along with their Savior Jesus Christ, reign on thrones in heaven. Scene three. We, we shift to the end of that thousand years. Back to Satan in the pit. And, and what happens? He's released. And he emerges once again, able to deceive the nations. And he gathers seemingly people from all the ends of the earth to war against Christ and his church. But he doesn't succeed. Fire comes down upon him and his legions. And Satan is thrown in verse 10 into the lake of fire and sulfur. The same place where we saw the beast and the false prophet thrown last week, if you remember. Then our final scene. The scene shifts back up to heaven. It shifts back to that great throne upon which Jesus is seated. And we see that great and final judgment as all great and small stand before the throne. And there's two sets of books. And one set of books are all the deeds of everything that everybody has has ever, ever done. And we read that the people are judged according to what they have done. But there's another book the book of life, in which are written the names of all who are saved in Christ. And we conclude with verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Why do we need to hear this this morning? I don't think we need to hear it to try to figure out exactly how the end is going to come. We certainly see a, a very wild picture of how things are going to end It's not to give us every precise detail, I don't think, about how it's going to come together. Be reminded of why John was was given these visions to begin with. He was given these visions for the good of the church then in his day and for the good of the church now. That that this text here before us is, is, is for our good, not just to tell us how things are going to end, but I think it's here to encourage you and I, encourage us with a great hope, a great hope that's not just some hope so but is a sure and certain hope. So what I want to do is I want us to look at four of these kind of certain hopes that I think this text gives us. Ones that I think actually remain largely the same regardless of one's approach to this text. And so the first one, certain that the gospel will go to the very ends of the earth. Secondly, 
certain that our seats are secure in Christ. Thirdly, certain that Satan will be defeated. And then finally, certain that all will be made right in the end. So let's dive in. Let's dive into that first one, the certain that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. Many of you um, were a lot, some of you weren't. There's a lot of young folks in here, but you remember Y2K? Um, everybody was freaking out, like, is something going to happen? Is the whole world going to shut down? You know, is, is everything going to go off? Adrian, my wife, loves to tell the story of her and her friend watching the, the ball drop or whatever on, on New Year's Eve, and the lights go out, and they scream. And her brothers over there had just flipped off the light switch. Um, what is it about us? We, there's something in us that we just want to know, we, and we get all excited about the end and the end possibly being here, and could it be right there? And over and over, people have predicted the end, and over and over, it hasn't come. We need to be reminded of Jesus' words. What does Jesus say? No one. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the, the, the son, but only the father. As we've been looking at Revelation, we saw that from the very first verse of Revelation, John tells us that, that what he is given here, he's given in signs by the angel. That, that what he's given is, is so often symbolic, and, and so there's ways in which we've talked about this, the book of Revelation largely being a picture book. Not necessarily a puzzle book. Now, there's much, as we've seen. There's like a lot of stuff to try to figure out, partially because we live 2,000 years later, and we don't understand this whole apocalyptic literature stuff and all the Old Testament backgrounds. But ultimately, it's to paint a picture for us. Sometimes we zoom in, I think, too close into the picture to try to, try to figure, figure it all out. With that in mind, let's, let's start looking to this text. Look, look at verse 2. He sees the dragon that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. Right here we see that, that, that little phrase that's become, created such great controversy in the history of the church, a thousand years. The Latin word is where we get the word millennium um, from. And there's all sorts of debate. When does this millennium come? Does Jesus come back before or after these thousand years? Are these thousand years literal? Are these thousand years figurative as we've seen so much else in the book of um, Revelation? Are they, are they meant to be symbolic? And there's three main views. We can't go into all the details, but, but three main views. There's the, the premillennial view, which would say that, that Jesus' second coming precedes the millennium. In other words, it happens before our text that we have before us this morning. There's a post-millennial approach that, that says that the millennium starts sometime at the end of the church age, the church age we're in now, sometime. We, we move into the millennium, and then Jesus will come. His second coming will be at the end of the millennium. There's a third version that's called amillennialism that believes that the millennium started with Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and that this millennium will come to a close whenever Jesus returns. So in other words, the millennium is actually the entire church age. So in that way, and in the other approaches, some people don't believe it either. There's no literal thousand years, which is quite fitting as we've gone through Revelation. How many literal numbers have we seen? How many numbers have we seen that seem to line up with literally like that many days or, or that many years? So we shouldn't be surprised of that here. Now, as I say that, I, w- I want to say that all three of the approaches I just mentioned, they're all people trying to be faithful to the scriptures. 
All people who love Jesus and are trying to be faithful to him. Now, as I said this morning, I don't have time to pull apart all those different arguments and all those different perspectives. Come to Sunday school next week and we'll try to do a little bit of that. We won't probably do nearly as much as you'd like, uh, but we will try to do some of it. So this morning, as we approach this text, we're going to be approaching it from that latter position, that amillennial position, that, that position that says the millennium is actually right now. It's the entirety of the church age and that this church age will conclude, this millennium will conclude when Jesus comes back with his second coming. And in fact, if you've been paying attention, this is the exact perspective that we'd followed throughout the book of, of, of Revelation. Now, with that being said, what, what does our text here mean? What does it mean that, that Satan is bound and bound for a thousand years? If, if the millennium is now, that would mean that what? Satan is bound and he's bound right now. And surely, if you think about it, that can't be true, right? Let's look at a couple of passages. Matthew 12, Jesus talks about the coming of the kingdom and how it will come. And what does he say? But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter, what does he say? How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. What does Jesus say? How would his kingdom come? What would need to happen, but the strong man would need to be bound. Interesting for us uh, this morning, bound so that the gospel can go out. In, in John 12, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Hmm, interesting. We turn to Colossians 2, and, and Paul tells us that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authority. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We put these things together. What do we see? What it is it that Jesus accomplished? What is part of what he accomplished through his ministry, through his death and resurrection? In some way, what has he done? It sounds like. It sounds like in some way he's, he's cast Satan out. In some way, he's, he's bound him up. Do you remember back in Revelation 12? Maybe you don't. It was right there at the beginning of our, our Christmas season. We read this, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. I don't know if you caught it then, but what do we say it meant? It meant that with Jesus's victory, Satan's abilities in some way were curtailed and particularly curtailed as, as to how he was a deceiver of the whole world as we just saw there. In particular, his ability to deceive the nations. This is why. What do we see as we move into the book of Acts? What suddenly happens in Acts 2? But the gospel begins to explode. It's like the good news of Yahweh had never gone out before like this. And suddenly it begins to take place. We read this in Revelation 20, verse 3. And what does the angel do? He throws him into the pit. He shut it and sealed it over him. What? so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. John gives us a, a perspective. Remember, this is a picture, and, and he's bound. But what does that bounding look like? John tells us that he's not able to deceive the nations any longer. Now, this doesn't mean the curtailment of, of all deceit. It seems, though, that, that prior to Jesus' victory, Satan had power to keep the good news of Yahweh from extending beyond Israel. 
But as a result of Jesus' earthly ministry, his death, his resurrection, and the sending of Holy Spirit, what happens? But the gospel begins to explode. It begins to go out, and it goes beyond that one nation, and it begins to go to the ends of the earth with the coming of Jesus. With the coming of Jesus, his kingdom begins to spread like never before. Satan is bound, and the gospel spreads. Let's not miss this. I I hope you know this today, that the gospel is on the move, that the church of Jesus Christ is growing. It may seem sometimes like in our midst, it's not growing as much as we would like or not growing much at all, but throughout the world, it's growing at an incredible rate. In the 1900, around 1900, only 8% of evangelical believers, those who, who believe the Bible is the word of God, who trust in the gospel, only 8% of them lived in what we call the global south, south of the equator for the most part, okay? You know what that number is today? It's almost 80% of believers live in the global south. The gospel of Jesus Christ is on the move. Our Savior is on the move. Let's not miss the main point, I think, of this first scene, not whether Satan is even bound at this moment. I've tried to tell you why, part of why I think that he is. But what John is, is being reminded of is the sure and certain hope that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. That that picture that we saw back in Revelation 7, do you remember it? As he looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe, from from peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The picture here is that that is coming to completion. This is our hope. I hope you know amidst this world, a world that seems dark and and dying. We, We need to know, even when our evangelism hopes seem to fail, Christ's church is not slowing down. Maybe you remember the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. You remember how it was always winter. It was never Christmas, right? And, and the witch seemed to rule. But then there's that moment where Mr. Beaver tells the Pevensey children, they say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he has already landed. Lewis goes on to write, and now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside them because Aslan was on the move. It was going to be winter no more. He was going to expand his kingdom. Please don't miss this morning that our Savior Jesus Christ is on the move. And he's on the move through the work of his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let us live with a certain hope that the gospel will go out to the ends of the earth as he has promised. Of course, we see the scene shift. We see Satan bound, but then we we shift and what's going on at the same time up in the heavens. Verse four, then I saw thrones Seated on them were those who had authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
Who are these who are on the throne? Who are these who are reigning with our Savior, Jesus Christ? No doubt they're the same individuals who we read back about in Revelation 6 who are underneath the altar. Those who are slain for the word of God and for the witness that he had borne. No doubt what I think we're seeing is a fulfillment of, of that promise that Jesus made to the church of Laodicea, that the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now we see a picture of that very thing as the saints, those who have gone to be with Christ are reigning with him in the heavenlies. So the picture here is of Jesus after his resurrection and ascension, what does he do? He takes his seat on the throne as the great king and all those who've, who've gone to be with him are seated with him. We read in verse five, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. That might be odd language, first resurrection. What is John mean, remember back to, in verse four, we, we saw that these are the souls, okay? It seems to be a little bit of an indication that these are disembodied spirits who are seated and reigning with Christ. So what is this first resurrection? You remember the thief on the cross? What did Jesus say, with, say to him? Today, today you will be with me in paradise, what we see here is a picture of that, what happens to, to the thief on the cross, what happens to us when, when, when we physically die, but we go to be with Christ now. Now amidst this, just please not miss, again, the main point. And I think we see it in verse six. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. To be with Jesus now is a great and incredible uh, blessing. You remember Paul even going through this quandary of, uh, of wanting to be here, but wanting so much more to be with Christ because that is far better. And why is that so wonderful? Because to be with Christ, to be in Christ means what? Did you, do, do you catch it in, in verse 6? The second death has no power over you. Second death, another strange, what's a second death? It's bad enough there's a first, right? To understand the second death, what do we need to understand the first? The first um, is that death that's suffered by all who die uh, before Jesus returns. It's what we would think of as bodily death. Now, if that's what the first death is, what is that second death? The second death is that punishment, that eternal death that we're going to read about in a few minutes. It's the eternal death and punishment for all who are not in Christ, who are cast into the lake of fire. That is the second death. And that's where we need to see the heart here in this passage what is John being reminded over such the second death has no power for those who are united to Christ. The second death has no power. You see, we can live. If you are in Christ, you can live with a certain hope that your seat is secure. Your seat is secure. What, a, what an encouragement that must have been to John 
I was thinking about this. Just imagine. Now, remember, we're, we're, John's seen symbols. He's seen pictures. So he's not like seeing faces that he recognizes, I don't think. But just imagine, John, by this point, it would seem that all the apostles, except for him, probably are dead. Most of them martyred. What an encouragement must have been for John to see these, to see this, to know that his, his co-laborers in the gospel, his dear friends, were reigning with Christ. What an encouragement to you and I today to, to know that, that if we're in Christ, if, if we die, if our, our loved ones who are in Christ, if, if they die before Jesus returns on that very day, you, they, will be with their Savior in paradise. Whether we die before uh, Christ's return or not, regardless, we can be confident, confident that our seats are secure. Now, we then shift scenes, don't we? The thousand years, the millennium has come to an end. What we would say is the church age has come to a conclusion And what happens? But Satan is released. We read in verse eight. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. What do we see here but the final battle? A battle that I actually think we've already seen twice before, if you were paying attention. Back in 16, it was called the Battle of Armageddon. And just last week, we saw it in that great battle where Jesus enters on his war horse. And yet we see it again, reminded of that control room, right? We're seeing the same battle, but from from different perspectives on different screens, but it's the same battle. But in this battle, as as we're seeing this perspective, we we see that the restraints against Satan have been removed. And he is able to again do what but deceive the nations. He's able to do that which no doubt he has longed to do for a very long time, to bring together troops seemingly from from all the nations, from the four corners of the earth, to war against Christ and his church. And what's the response? Verse nine, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is a moment the scripture has been waiting for. All the way back from Genesis 3, right after the fall, we're reminded of those words that were said to Satan himself, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, a fatal bruising to your head. You shall bruise his heel. The final, fatal bruising to Satan has finally come. And he's thrown into the lake of fire. Again, a picture for us to describe for us something that is in many ways indescribable. And that is the eternal, conscious torment of hell. And Satan is consigned there. And please note, This isn't like the comic books. He's not the ruler of hell. What do we read? 
in verse 10, but he will be tormented day and night forever. This is no doubt a dark picture. Let's not miss miss the light and the incredible good news that this actually is for us. The evil one is permanently and forever defeated. John was showing this so that he could know, so that we could know that this life, this world that we live in does not have the final word. But our Savior enters into history and he has the final word. He causes the fire to come down upon the evil one and casts him into hell. We can live certain that Satan will be defeated. And along with him, all vestiges of sin and evil and darkness and all the sadness and the horribleness that so often we get confronted with with this world, all of it gone. All of it defeated at the hands of our Savior. Now our passage has one final scene for us. We read about it in verse 11. I saw a great right throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. The scene here is of that final judgment. Satan already vanquished. All of creation pictured as like scattering and all is left for the people living and dead. In fact, verse 13, we see a little bit of the, the, this picture of a, a final resurrection as all the dead are brought back to life and the great and small all stand before the throne. Verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened and then another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Again, these two sets of books. This one set of books that's symbolic of of God's memory, his, his memory of everything that you or I have ever done, all of our deeds. And we're told in verse 13, and in, or it's repeated in verse 13, what are we told? But they, we, are judged according to what they had done. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here we see, as it's mentioned in verse 14, a picture of that second death that we mentioned earlier. Not only will will Satan and the beast and the false prophet be thrown into the lake of fire, we see too here is so too will all unbelievers all who have not been sealed in Christ, all whose names are not written in that book of life. Again, the picture we're given here, please don't miss it. It, It's stark, it's sad, it's hard to hear. But it's true. The picture here is of the eternal conscious torment of hell. Of this day, C.S. Lewis said this, God is going to invade this earth in force. But what is the good of saying you are on his side then? 
when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered into your head to conceive comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either, either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will be the time, that will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we've really chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Do you take it or do you leave it? As dark as this picture is, the, we don't like to talk about hell and judgment. But let's not miss that even in our passage, there's great hope. The lamb gives you the opportunity to have your name written in his book. There's incredible hope there. In Revelation 13, the this, this same book is mentioned as the book of life of the lamb who was slain. And whose names are written there? But all who are saved by the blood of the lamb, all who have trusted in Christ, all who have repented of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, all of their names, all of their names are written in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. See, if you're in Christ, if what I just read is true about you, whether that's been true of you for 80 years or it's just true of you at this moment, your name is just as indelibly written in the book of life, the book of life of the lamb who was slain. And let's not miss why your name is able to be written there. It's able to be written there not because of what you have done. <laughs> Those books over there, they're not going to be pretty, are they? But your name is able to be written in the book of life because of what he has done. What our Savior Jesus Christ has done for us. So let's not miss the incredible good news. The good news that we heard about earlier that, that over such the second death has no power. Because on that last day, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Again, let's not miss the main point. We can be certain that all will be made right in the end. God will bring judgment where judgment is rightly deserved. 
There is no greater judge than he, no better discerner of what is right and wrong than he, and he will bring perfect judgment. But the incredible good news is that he also brings vindication. He also brings new life. He brings hope for those who trust in him. So our passage tells us, I think, a couple of important things. Hopefully not getting so distracted by the details of exactly how it's all going to play out. But certain that the gospel will go out to the ends of the earth. Christ's church will not be stopped. Certain that if you're in Christ, that your seats are secure. They're immovable. If your name is written in that book of life, it's indelibly written. It cannot be removed. Certain that Satan will be defeated along with all evil and death and sin, all gone, all wiped away. We can be certain that all will be made right in the end. Do you today? Do you know the certainty? that comes from knowing Jesus. Do you know it? I pray you do. If you don't, we'd love to talk to you. There is no greater question. Do you know Jesus today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even when it's not always easy to understand, we thank you for your promises that do ring loud and true and clear to us this day. Oh, would you help us to cling to the true, the sure, the certain promises that come to us in the gospel? I pray for any here today who do not know you. Oh, would you help them even in this moment to cling to you, recognizing their sin and their desperate need of a Savior and believe that these promises are true for them as well. Oh, Father, as we go into this week, would you help us to live not according to the ways of the world, not according to the philosophies of the world, but with the sure and certain hope of all that our Savior has accomplished and all that is promised to us in him. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the wonderful good news of the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.